Welcome to Design Meets Business, a show that inspires designers to think beyond pixels. I'm your host, Christian Vasile, and on this podcast, I sit down with creatives to talk about their stories, lessons they've learned during their careers, and how you can use design to make a bigger impact in your organization. On the last episode of season one, we're talking to Connor Ward, director of design at BT Consumer. We talk about how designers can prove their value in larger companies, why working in silos is a thing of the past, and how to transition from a design leader to a business leader. Connor, thank you so much for joining Design Meets Business. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. You are one of the design leaders that I was lucky enough to work with, and I'm really looking forward to bring some of your knowledge to the masses, if you will. So uh, you used to be the Global Digital Experience Director at Centricon. For the people who don't know what that is, it's the owner of Produce Gas. And uh, as I said, I used to be part of your team. And I remember we, we had chats about quote-unquote, playing the game, which basically is the whole idea of designers understanding how to manage their stakeholders in larger organizations. So before we go into all that, if you just like to dive a bit uh, deeper into who you are so people know who's talking to them and, you know, you grew up in Northern Ireland, if I'm not mistaken, you know, how you came up to London and maybe a couple of words about the sexiest man alive. That's a story that I love. (laughs) <laughs> okay, how do I do it in about four seconds so that I don't bore anybody? Um, it's great to chat with you, mate. It's been a while. It's good to catch up. So I guess my, my career has been in, in three really quick phases. So the first phase was music, and I did a, a lot of improvisational music as a, as a kind of a career for a while, a step away from design for a while. And that basically taught me how to get good at generating ideas and then throwing them away. So, so the old kind of diverge, converge model got fully ingrained in my brain being an improvisational musician. Um, so that was great. Second part of my career was getting back into design again after university um, and, and did a lot of agency work. So did huge amounts of kind of um, different brands and enjoying the breadth of uh, different types of skill sets and figuring out what does design mean in all the different areas, which was great to kind of broaden my thinking about what, what I think design is as a role. And then the third part of my career is, is enterprise size things. So that's where I, I moved into um, you know, kind of heavy design leadership and learned a lot about that since then in some, in some very large companies, British Gas, and now I'm the director of design at BT. Fantastic. Looking over your profile and doing a bit of research before this, I've noticed a lot of things that I didn't know about you. So first, I didn't know you had a bachelor in, in computer science. You've been a software tester for a while. You're a certified scrum master. How have these aided you in your career as a designer or as, and then later on, of course, as a design leader, but, you know, take it a step by step. Yeah. And, and certified product owner and a number of other things. I, I think it's, it's trying to figure out what other feathers can I add to my bow. You know, I, I think that for me, the, the most interesting part of, of this digital industry when it is to try and broaden beyond a particular silo that you might be put in. So if you're, if you're you know, a UX designer, how do you broaden yourself to consider all the other different disciplines? If you're a broadly skilled designer or a design leader, how do you broaden your knowledge, skills, influence, um, expertise around lots of other different areas? How do you understand technology and your technology colleagues better? How do you understand um, product and, and that kind of product management approach? And how does product ownership work? What does the business need, etc.? I just can't value that enough, I think that knowledge helps you become a, a better designer. 
let's keep talking about that. Why does that all that knowledge and understanding what everyone around you works on and all the disciplines you're kind of cross collaborating with? Why is that important to designers? Well, I think it's the old it's the old Venn diagram, isn't it? We talk about that quite a lot at, here at BT with me and my other director colleagues. And um, you know, there's there's hundreds of different funny Venn diagrams of of what design is, what a product is, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the one I think that works for me in my head most is, you know, the three circles or the three-legged stool where, where one of the circles is uh, the user, uh, one of the circles is the technology that you have to work with, um, and one of the circles is the business and the reason why um, anybody is getting paid to work on this in the first place. And, and I think that the center of that, sometimes I think people get confused that the center of that is a discipline like design. Right, or the center of that is UX. For me, the center of that is the product. Right, It's the thing that you're creating. It's the experience. And the more that you can broaden your knowledge across those three different areas, the more you can contribute. To the, you can empathize with your colleagues. You can contribute your thoughts um, and be part of the overall holistic process of creating a great product. Um, the less you do that, the, the more you're just going to, I guess, get in people's way and annoy them a little bit and try and be a bit of a purist where you're fighting for your own discipline, you know? Yeah, and I guess a lot of designers struggle with that in large enterprises, especially where design maybe is not that valued as in a small startup, is actually fighting a lot against people who, at the end of the day, have the same goals as them, right? Which the goal is, let's create a great product, but they go by achieving these goals in a different way. So let's segue a bit into talking about designing larger enterprises where you have most of your recent experience of what the last four, five, six years. In your experience, what have you seen as patterns of what design as a practice struggles with in some of these bigger companies? Yeah, so... um our design team at BT is, is 190 designers at the moment. It's very large. And our, that's because our definition of design is very broad and wide-ranging. So our definition of design that we created when I joined the team, uh, created with the rest of the team two years ago, was human insight-based creativity. And so that covers kind of four areas of our team that we, that we set up at the time. So first area is product design. And that we have kind of 80 or so product designers. And, and that's a, a mix of people that have typically they would be called UX designers or UI designers, et cetera. And we have a single role now called a product designer that looks after how does a user interact with our product, right? The second area of our team is content design. And so that looks after all of the creation of the content, the reason why it exists in the first place, all of the kind of content editing, updating, producing it, and all of the SEO and how it's found in the, in the first place, right? Um, the third area of our design team is, is called inclusive design. And that covers our user research team, it covers our service design team, and it also covers our accessibility specialist roles. Mm -hmm. So just looking at how do we make sure that we're being as user-centered as possible. And the fourth role is a design ops team. So, so that covers the design system squad, we have design ops roles, we have a content ops role, we have a research ops role. Um, and for me, this is the engine room of our design team because they're trying to essentially make designing easier for the rest of the design team. So that's a kind of a really nice uh, summary for me of what the design team is. But the really interesting thing about the way we're set up at BT is the rest of the organization. So, for example, I'm the first design director at BT, which was a really exciting role for me to take on. But my peers 
are product directors, engineering director, uh, building planning director, etc. So it's kind of like, instead of those being perhaps in other organizations pulled into engineering would report into IT, product would report into the business, etc. It's kind of more like we're all the business. Um, we're all trying to do something together. We all report into the, the MD of digital and he reports into the CEO. So you, you start getting these things that are promised um, in, at Silicon Valley companies where design is one step away from the CEO. It's being represented and the intent is that it's an important thing and that's why it has a, um, a representation at director level. And so we do things like, would well, we have to have a design strategy? Right, that where in other places that wasn't necessarily accepted because that we had to just be part of another strategy. So it's kind of well, what's our design strategy, and then how does that contribute um, to the overall product strategy? So I think that that setup is really is really working for us. So that setup is really working for you because design is seen as a very important part of the whole organization. Therefore, you know you have a role basically. As, as close to the top as possible and then it just triggers down the, the trust and the, the belief that design matters that triggers down to the rest of the team but unfortunately not all enterprises work like that unfortunately as you said design sometimes sometimes design reports into engineering sometimes reports into product sometimes not even one of these let's talk a bit about that when that happens how do you then make design important enough or how do you talk about design so people around realize that actually for us to be the most effective we would need to sit at a higher level yeah it's an interesting question because it starts to get into um what is design versus designers right and, and for me design doesn't exclusively happen from designers or by designers designers in my in my view they're there to help all of the other roles become as user-centered as possible in, in their activities, right? So that becomes a really interesting shift on things because, and and you could you could play with this notion and, and use the, the Twitter phrase of everybody's a designer, right? I, I, I don't know if you want to play that game or not. I'm more interested in the fact that everybody contributes to the experience, right? So for example, when uh, uh, we started a new version of our team at BT a couple of years ago when I joined, we created a set of experience principles, not design principles. Right? Because we wanted everybody to say, well, the experience that we create should meet these five experience principles and everybody's responsible for that. So I think things like that help to, to get the buy-in for people that it's not these clever designers with their clever hats that can go and do some clever things and they have all the right answers. Designers don't know what, what to create, but they have a, set, a certain set of methods that they would go through on here's how we find out what to create. Um, and certainly engineering have their own version of that, a product have their own version of that, and how do we bring that all together? So staying on this topic, we were talking on some of the previous episodes about how one of the largest or one of the biggest problems designers have is showing the impact of their work. And I guess that's mostly the top, that's the topic of the podcast, right? Design is business, design meets business. So let's talk a bit about that because design historically has been known as art. Art doesn't solve problems. Art just exists. In the past 15, 20 years, we've moved more and more away from that and towards, you know, maybe, you know, like more like product design and we're working closer with engineering and with the business now. But I think one of the problems we still have is that we're not really very good at measuring our work. So how can we start doing that? And how can we talk about our work in organizations so people understand what value we can add? 
It's such a good question. It's it's one that you know many a McKinsey study has been created to try and quantify. You know, hey, every dollar you spend in design, you get ten dollars back, right? Um, I think it's very hard to extract just the value of design all by itself. We've had a look at some case studies over the last year to see what progress we're making, and we have, you know. Are the highest ever MPS that BT has ever had, right? I mean, we have that it's in the last kind of year, which is amazing. We have kind of, you know, 14% increase in, in, in our, our conversion funnels for, you know, our sales journeys, et cetera. We, we raised a million pounds for the NHS. We've done some great things that you could attribute if you wanted to, in, in part, to, to design, but you wouldn't say it was just design, right? I mean, the, the experience was improved, but everybody contributed to the experience being improved. So I'm kind of more interested in, how does design help everybody succeed and the overall business value being achieved? And this is, brings us back to the kind of three circles idea is, are we trying to become more user-centered as a company with the ambition of trying to achieve and provide more value? And value can mean two things. It can mean value for the customer and it can in turn mean value for the business. And as long as those two happen in tandem, it's the right answer. I think you know it, it, it's, it brings us back to the, our experience principle one that we have at BT, which is um, we kind of state in the principle text it says the best way to achieve business value is by providing customer value. Um, and I think if, if that kind of thing actually becomes a behavior shift and a mindset shift, and that's the kind of value that you're able to start to attribute to a more user-centered organization rather than a design-led organization. And I think if you read... Any article out there that, that worth itself that talks about the, the, the value of design, it doesn't talk about becoming a design-led company. It talks about becoming a more user-centered company. And I think that that helps with the politics of trying to push that through, is that you're not trying to say design is the right answer. Designers are the best. What you're trying to say is, hey, let's become more user-centered. Design might have some ways to try and do that, but everybody else might have some ways too. How do we work together on that? Yeah, totally. And I think a lot of the aspects you're talking about are very much at a high level. These discussions happening at a leadership level, at a director level, when we're trying to bring it down to earth and you know the day-to-day of a designer, how can people down on the ground who are working in the trenches, if you will, help someone at the top to push that, let's call it an agenda for lack of a better word? So I think it comes down to behaviors right so there's a lot of effort i see a lot of designers putting in effort trying to evangelize right they're really kind of almost tiring themselves out sometimes during the day trying to get people to believe what they believe and it's hard it's a hard job to do that um i don't know if you're familiar with uh, there's a model that uh, barry o'reilly um, shared in a conference one time called shook's model and it's always stuck with me because shook's model was um, it's this kind of pyramid. It's hard to describe without a diagram, but I'll try my best. <laughs> but it's a, it's a kind of a three-layered pyramid. On the, bo- on the bottom, it says culture. Um, and in the middle, it says values. And in the top, it says what we do, right? And the old way of trying to change what we do is by starting at the bottom and saying, right, we're going to change our culture. And then if we change our culture, our values will change. And then that will change how we all operate. And we'll all do this great user-centered th- um, thing. We'll all be, all these activities, everything we do will be all user-centered. That's too hard. It's just too hard. And and there's there's a couple of really good examples, I guess, I've got in my, in my last couple of roles where you just start at the top. 
right? You change the behaviors of a particular group of people. So if you're in your squad, you say, hey, there's this new tool we're going to use. There's this thing we're going to do. We're going to we're going to pop into the lab once a, week, once a month, whatever, right? And, and if we agree with that behavior, all of a sudden people go, oh, right, this was really good. Our product is succeeding now. This, the, this was much easier. And we, we understand a lot of things better now, et cetera, et cetera. Why did we do that again? We say, yeah, this is part of, you know, user-centered design. I can tell you more about it if you're interested. There's lots more things we want to instill into the way we work. And all of a sudden, values change, culture changes. We're all user-centered. Um, so it's it's that kind of change behaviors to change mindsets. Don't try and change mindsets first. It's too hard. It sounds to me like one of the keys to that is a bit more transparency around the work we do. Because in order to be able to show what we're doing, you need to be more transparent. And as designers, we oftentimes work in silos. We don't really talk about our process and then two weeks later is the grand reveal of what we've worked on. So we, we in, in some organizations, that's how it works. And I guess... What you're talking about is changing that and collaborating more with people around and being more transparent about the work we do. And then through that, over a long period of time, things might potentially change. Did that? Did I read that correctly? Or 100%. And that's one of the things that, for example, Design Ops has given us. And, and that, that, that fits with the model of change behaviors first, or rather change mindsets, right? So we changed our tooling set first. So we, we, we stopped using Photoshop and all of that. We stopped using Sketch and all of that. We said, right, we're all in Figma now. We're all Figma for our, our uh, designing, and we're all in kind of mirror or mural for our collaboration activities. And this was perfect timing pre-kind of lockdown for everybody to, to jump into these digital tools. Uh, and the key behind that was, first of all, product designers and content designers now work in the same file. So there's no point at which there's a handover within design right previously there was kind of wireframes got handed to somebody else somebody else made some beautiful kind of visuals somebody somewhere else there was a, a copywriter you know writing in word and they, these things somehow got them together then they had to go for in front of stakeholders etc etc and then at some point to, to engineers right um tools like figma again it becomes a behavior change where you say right you know what you guys are all in the same document at the same time create stuff all at the same time have no handover process um, and that because like, oh, okay, we're, we're trying this out now. And so we, we shifted to those tools because collaboration is constant and visibility and transparency is constant. And you say to anybody, you go along to your marketing stakeholders or your kind of, you know, directors, etc. You just go, hey, here's our file. Pop it, you know, we'll pop it in Slack and tell me update it, but just click on the link, come and have a look, right? And, and we're not going to create presentations for you. We'll welcome you into our space, which is our file, and we'll show you constantly where we are, what we're trying to do together. So again, that's another behavior change that results in intense, constant collaboration, not just within design, but with the rest of the squad and across the business. So did you find that when you shifted those processes and you for example said to your uh, wider team here's the figma file here's where we do our work we invite you in have you discovered that people are actually interested and they it improved collaboration 100 percent. the the, di the difference is fantastic Pe people in these files together and what you get then is Anybody is able to go to any point in the file. When you're getting presentations, people are kind of like just walking through. Doesn't have to be anybody in particular presenting anything. It can be, it can be product owner, it could be an engineer, it can be a designer. Just like walking through. Here's what we're trying to achieve together. And and the same for the kind of interactive whiteboard tools like Miro and, and, and Mural and that. It's um people actually together planning things out rather than going off in a silo making a you know slide deck or something. And it's like well we've decided this and we haven't told you. 
So I think it's it's it seems like a small thing to focus on, like what's the right tooling set. And but but if you have a design ops team, that's the kind of thing it can unlock for you. Is actually it's not unlocking the right tool set; it's unlocking collaboration and transparency. Another example, I think maybe you could talk a bit about that, is another example of how you show the way, if you will, and then over time, people will understand the value of it and will follow it. I think I remember the story of how the in-house lab at British Gas came about, which very few companies of that size, where design is not part of the company, part of the core of the company, have a lab. It was crazy when I was, when I was talking to people and telling them they couldn't believe. So... You were a big part of making that happen. So talk a bit about the process of, of pushing for a lab and how that came about. Yeah, it's quite funny. I think when we talk about this, it's we had like 23 versions of the lab or something. It's, it's, it's just like iterations and taking our own iterative methodology to, to building a lab, right? So, I mean, that's when I joined the team, I realized that, that the team used to kind of you know go and, and pay a lot of money to do some external testing a handful of times a year. And so it didn't happen very often. Big, huge reports that weren't really used um, at the end of it because it was like in a stage before it went live. So it was like too late to change anything, the old, that old story. So what we did was we said, well, what's version one of a lab? Because we haven't got any money. To, there's no justification for this. So version one was um, we, we kind of, one person with uh, a couple of users go and find a meeting room uh, and just say, hey, you know, we'll bring somebody and we'll sit them down in front of our laptop and that's it. And they would sit there on their own. And then they come out and they say, right, so, okay, we've done that for a few days. Here's all the things that were wrong with that, right? It's hard to find people, no money to pay them, nobody's understanding the results, the person's too busy moderating to capture them, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like as you would expect. So then you go to the next one, which is like, right, we'll do a, a Skype screen share with like two other people from the squad in another up, like um, meeting room. And so you book two meeting rooms and then that's it. And now you've got like a moderator room and a, and a observation room and then people go oh this is great i get to see what users are doing how do i get more of this and so it just kind of developed where we we stuck a, like a sign on one of the doors said hey this is the lab and i started going around telling everybody we've got like a lab now and we made like little funny logos of you know science icons and whatnot we're like we've got this like lab and and we do science things in here it's behavioral science we'll tell you what that is when you're interested etc People go, oh, right, I didn't know you guys had a lab. And like, what happens in the lab? And then all of a sudden, you know, we kind of started buying more things, little signs that said, there's testing going on here, don't come in. And people go, hi, I'm at it. There's a sign saying I can't come in because there's like customers in the building. Is there customers in the building? I'm kind of excited about that now. How do, how do I like, I thought I thought only people in the call center or the stores, they get to see customers. We get to see customers too. And it's just, you know, and it goes on from that. And, and at this point, We've sp still spent no money and somebody's like, no one's noticed that we've stolen a room in, in, in one of the meeting rooms. And then the next thing we went down to a charity shop and, and spent like 25 quid on bits and bobs to try and pretend that it was a living room. So like all these little, you know, wooden ducks and like books and stuff or whatever. And then to try and say, hey, like, hey, come into our lab. It's it's like it's like a customer's home, you know, et cetera. So anyway, it's, it, was a, it was really fun. And all of a sudden we got like the value of this. Everyone can, you know, get over the, the value of this. And then we said to them, right, we expect all of our squads to be in the lab once a month, right? Because this is how you get user center. there. And they're like, okay, right, great. Because that's what we were already doing. And we had to say, and by the way, we need a whole bunch of money for like, um, you know, like to do up the lab properly and to get proper technology so we don't have to Skype each other and put wires through the roof or whatever. Uh, and by the way, to pay these users um, you know some money to participate etc so you just kind of you, you can't say no at those points because it's proven its value and it's becoming kind of sold in so again it's it's a behavior change 
where people see the value of something. It's it's the show don't tell, right? Of kind of we're doing this, it's great, and then you say, hey, let, let me tell you why it's great. You know, let me tell you the, the the thinking behind this. Let me tell you, you know, how how what, what are the other things we want to bring to to our culture to make it more user centered as well. You know, fun times. The re- yeah, it's fun times. The reason I wanted <laughs> you to tell that story is because I think it's a great example of how. You eat your own dog food is that expression, right? So you, you don't only design in a specific way when you create products, but you can also design the way you work and every other problem you can have. You can use design thinking and an iterative process, if you will, to try to solve that. And I think you, you just said something a few seconds ago, proving a value over time, show, don't tell. And I think sometimes as designers, we expect to come into organizations and everything to be there for us so we can do the best work. But Actually, most of the time that doesn't happen. And I think the key to this is exactly proving the value over time and showing and not telling. So other than this example of the lab, what else could designers on the ground in the trenches do on a daily basis to show the value of what they're doing over time? Yeah, well, I mean, another example that uh, we, we've tried recently, um, about six months ago, that's really showing some promises is we created this thing called Build, Measure, Learn Canvas, right? And it was another kind of behavioral change, cultural change type tool. I think we'll have a blog post about it in our BT Design Team Medium blog if you want to go have a look. But um, essentially, it, it, we, we made the intent, just like we decided not to have design principles, but instead experience principles, we decided to not have a design process but instead a product process, right? A, pr- a product squad process where everybody could feel a part of it and contribute to it. And so we, we kind of put lots of, loads of red X's around all the things we could have chosen. We could have done the, the kind of, you know, left to right, double diamond thing. Um, you know, we could have done the design thinking stages, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem we're trying to solve at, uh, at the moment is that there's lots of waterfall areas of an organization that are used to going left to right and having a finish point, right? Where a project mentality, whereas we're trying to bring a product mentality to it where you constantly iterate and you constantly increment. So we thought, well, we have to have that type of a model. And also it can't be for designers, it has to be for everybody. So we went with this kind of build, measure, learn model. And it has these, it has these kind of four questions. Two are about the business, two are about the customer. So the first two are about the business, it says, should we do this? Right, so, so the four questions are, should we, how might we? And then the other two questions are, can they and will they, right? So, so should we is, should we even do this, right? What problem are we trying to solve? Uh, what's the business goals? What's the primary business goal? What's the user needs? What's the primary user need, right? So perfectly already, everybody's aligned on the same problem. And fantastically, there's a user need in there, side by side with the business goal. So again, that's changed things because now we start off with alignment and agreement on a business goal and a user need that we're trying to meet. Fantastic, right? Change things overnight. So even if you just did that alone as a, as a team, as a squad, you'll see the difference um, overnight. The other bits were fantastic, and you can read about them in, in our blog, but it talks about the how might we is like, what are all our experiments? What are all our hypotheses? What are all our kind of current limitations? What are we going to try next, right? And then all of a sudden, then that turns the product backlog from a set of deliverables into a set of experiments, right? A set of things we're trying to learn because any MVP you create should be about learning something, not delivering something, right? So then the second two um, questions, 
make sure we're focusing back on the customer again. So and trying to understand what's the leanest way of creating something to find out something. So for example, the can they is can users use this? Can they understand it? Can they find it, etc. You don't necessarily need to go live for that. You want to go into a lab for that. You want to create a super thin, super lean prototype, put it in front of users, find out all those can they questions. Can they get this? Can they understand it? Can they find it, etc. Right? Um, but if you're trying to find out a will they question, will they use this? Will they, you know, will they actually stop calling us? Will they buy more of this? Will they sign up to this product? Whatever. Then make sure you jump straight into that area and create a super lean MVP in live code. And you can't find those questions out in a lab, so don't get your types of research mixed up. Put it live. Find out will users actually utilize this product? And so that clarity of our process means everybody's involved in it. It means the prioritization is right. It means it's user-centered. And it's not some sort of design process for designers that they go and stick their headphones on and do something in a corner and try and look clever. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. And I've seen it firsthand uh, working in your teams, how how that how we've tried to make that happen. So, um, yeah. There's this discussion that design or designers, but mostly design leaders, the ones who are more towards the top, need to become business leaders or are business leaders because without the business, there's no design. Design has no uh, purpose unless it's to help the business grow or whatever the business goals are. But that transition cannot happen from one day to another. You know, if you have a background in design, you understand design, you can't the day after just be a business leader, right? So how can someone who's trying to make that transition ease, ease off on that or, or make it in an easier or make that transition in an easier way? Probably two things come to mind for that question. So the first one is, understanding value so so what value are you contributing to the organization and how, how do you work that out how does it how does it show up um, the, the details of being able to to kind of speak that language to understand what all the words mean all of the kind of terms etc and you know I still can't do that I'm working hard at it but there's still plenty of terms that I, I, I'm not exactly sure how they're calculated or, or numbers I mean I, I have to I have to ask for clarification on graphs way too often in, in sessions or on Slack behind the scenes saying, I don't understand what this graph's telling me. But you know, that's part of that's part of growing into that area, right? So it's it's back to those three circles about how much about the business and the value to the business do you understand? Looking at the money that you're spending, the 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 cost that you're taking out of the business to to, to kind of pay for these teams and the return on investment back again. So it it, it absolutely has to be part of and um, part of the the process, it has to be part of your thinking. And I think the other thing, the second thing would for me would be, it's hard for maybe some designers, certainly myself, to, to get out of the utopia mindset, because that's that's kind of what we're paid for. Right? We, we we're expected to kind of think of the perfect future, um, and wouldn't it be great if, right? And you know, purveyors of the impossible, right? So it's kind of like, well, that's great. Um, but we're we're kind of in reality right now. So how about dial back your utopia back to what's the next step towards it? And I constantly make that mistake. Ask any of my my peers that they're always giving me that feedback of saying, well, it's great, Connor, that you want to take us to, you know, ten years down the line. You you're getting confused to, to thinking that's tomorrow. It's that's ten years away. So so I love that you're giving us a challenge. Maybe you can find out a way to get it five years away, right? But but this conversation is about today and tomorrow. So so how about you come back in the room? It's like, okay, all right, right, fine, fine. So I, th I think it's just it's that. It's trying to find out how do you still provide that value, that that kind of limit, limitless thinking, but in a way that's 
useful to current um, realities and current business challenges. One of the favorite subjects that I like to talk about is design education, whether that is school or whether that is self-education, I call both design education. So starting uh, in your career. Do you have any opinions on that? Which one is better or maybe any opinions on, on design education as it is today? Um, no, I guess my only opinion on that is is one of my kind of core beliefs or core values in, in my life, even just beyond design, is just continuous improvement, right? Continuous learning, continuous um, education, self-improvement. And, and I think whatever way works for you to do that, go for it. You know, I mean, I spend way too much time on Twitter. I, I just, my whole Twitter is just design Twitter, which sometimes is fun, but uh, but a lot of the time is, is educational. Not always, but a lot of the time. And, you know, reading those books, trying to like read the books that are on the edge of your, of your knowledge when it comes to, you know, are you reading business books? Are, are you reading, you know, have you read Inspired by Marty Keegan? Like, are you trying to figure out what, what does a product manager do? Have you read Sense and Respond? Like, you know, have you read Lean Startup? You're in the startup way. Like, have you considered what it's like to be an entrepreneur and then bring that back to be an entrepreneur in your business? What, what are all the things that you can keep doing to expand your, your knowledge, your expertise in areas that you might not necessarily use immediately, but you, you almost certainly will in the long term? Keeping a bit on that topic and mostly around people who start in their careers, you've had conversations with junior designers forever. You know, you've hired them, you've said no to them in after interviews, etc. So what do you think are some of the blind spots that designers early in their careers have versus someone who's more experienced? I think that the the normal um, blind spot is always focusing on output rather than outcomes, isn't it? So, you know, it's it's the old Jeff Gothel video of output outcomes and impact um, and trying to kind of understand that how can you create the least amount of output for the most amount of outcomes and the biggest impact and, and not just focusing on what the output is, what it looks like. I still see to, to this day, you know, people that, that, that have an approach to, for example, presenting their designs where they show the output. It's a bit of a shame because that's that's not really um, what the focus should be on, and and that kind of that kind of thing actually encourages behaviours that we wouldn't necessarily enjoy across the company, where um, people then respond subjectively to the output. So you say you show some output, people will tell you whether they like it or not, right? And um, that's that's what's going to happen. Of course it is. Where if you show an experiment-based, learning-focused process. And by the way, here's the most recent assumption in an output format of how we're going to learn what the next thing is. And we'll tell you when we gain that evidence, anybody will go, brilliant. Um, when you got to, I can't wait to find out what, what you learn next. The only challenge you'll get at that point is, are you being bold enough? Right, which which is which is great. That All of a sudden that changes it. So I, I'd kind of, you know, anybody who's, who's kind of junior in design, I'd say make sure that design means user-centered design for a start. And then if it does mean user-centered design, focus on outcomes, not output. Right, Connor. I wish we would have hours to talk about design because there's there's plenty I know you've got in store for us. So maybe on on a, on a next season or next season again. But I ask everyone towards the end this couple of questions so uh, you don't get to escape either. So the first one is, what's one thing you wish more designers would know? Yeah, I was just I was I got stuck on having more chats about design. I think yeah, at some point in the future, whoever knows when, we can have a couple of pints and continue the conversation, right? As we have done in the past. <laughs> um, okay, let me get back to the question. What what's the one thing more designers should know? Gosh, that's it sounds it sounds like I'm, I have some 
particular wisdom to impart, which I probably don't. Oh, uh, I, I don't know about that. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess it's probably back to my previous point about uh, designers should know that design is about users. And if, if you're not fully involved in, in analyzing, viewing, observing, um, and being obsessed with the customer's use of your product, then I don't know. It's it's I guess it's a different type of design. I mean, maybe it's art, right? At that point. Yeah, we all know art and design are very much not the same thing. Last <laughs> one, Connor. How do you reckon the future of design as an industry looks like? Oh gosh, more wisdom. Um, who knows, right? I, I think. More and more, I'm kind of really seeing what we're enjoying at the moment is the, the coming together of these different roles. So design, getting closer to product, engineering, getting closer to design, you know, removing kind of removing barriers, certainly removing handovers or even the thought of a handover. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, the, the old phrase about design, having a seat at the table, et cetera, that, that's kind of, that's, that's happened a long time ago now. So now it's about, what 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 happens when you're trying to make a, a company more user centered, and I think that's the future. Of it is you you see companies now more and more becoming more digital, and as a result of becoming more digital, they become more user centered. They they be able they have the ability to to put things in front of customers faster, which means they can learn faster, which means they can respond faster, which means they're more customer centric, they're more user centric. So I, I think the future of design is is more collaborative, and it's more user centered. So off the back of that, do you think that one of the skills that defines and will define good designers in the future is being able to tear down these silos we've been into for a very long time? Yeah, 100%. Silos across design, silos across digital, silos across the business. Absolutely. Right. Connor, where can people find out more about you, read the stuff you write, or anything else you want to plug? That's uh, It's now. Now's the time. Okay, cool. Have a little Google for our uh, BT design medium blog where we try and post a few things on, on, on how we're doing what we're up to um, would love to hear anybody's thoughts if they read any of our articles um, I'm on Twitter uh, as as at UX much um, which I got a long time ago as a, as a little tag and I'm quite happy with it follow me on there have a look at our blog let us know let us know what you think and, and give us any of your thoughts on, on how anything we're trying is working for you or or different angles we should be considering Cool. As always, all of this will be in the show notes so people can easily find you. Connor, you have no idea how grateful I am for you being on a podcast. So again, <laughs> really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time. And, and hopefully, as you said earlier, we'll we'll get to, to be face-to-face -face soon again and, and talk design over a pint. So uh, really appreciate you taking the time. One of these days, Cheers, eh? man. Enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, well, you know, hopefully sooner rather than later. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> Thanks very much, mate. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Connor. As always. Cheers, man. Cheers, bye. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Since you've made it this far, I hope you found this useful. And if you did, you should know there's much more content just like this on the way. So if you want to learn more about how designers can impact businesses, please consider subscribing and maybe sharing the episode with others. And before I say goodbye, remember that you can find show notes and links for this episode and others on our website, designmeetsbusiness.co. Catch you in the next one.